Hi, welcome to the first episode of Real Talk, the show with Real Families for Change, where we highlight risk takers and change makers who are doing the work to make the screen industry better for all. On today's episode, we have Melissa Houghton, Executive Director of Women in Film and Video DC. We'll talk with Melissa about dignified storytelling, equity and access, and even the potential overturn of Roe v. Wade. Note this show was recorded prior to the Supreme Court decision on June 24, 2022. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Hope you enjoy. to Real Talk with Real Families for Change. I'm your host for this episode, Akima Brown. This is the show where we celebrate individuals who are helping us to create better in the film and television space. Our guest today is the Melissa Houghton from Women in Film and Television, Women in Film and Video, I apologize, DC. Um, Melissa has been the executive director since August of 2005, where with V serves 900 media professionals and coordinates over 100 professional development offerings annually. Um, She has served on the boards of the DC Architectural Foundation, DC Film Alliance, and Wide Angle Youth Media. And she's currently a member of the Weta Community Council, the FABES Advisory Council at George Mason University, and the advisory board for the Actors Center. Welcome, Melissa. It's always a pleasure when we get together. I'm happy to have you today. Well, thank you. I'm really honored to be here. I think the work that you're doing and your vision for how the media industry can work is something I totally want to be engaged with. Awesome. Thank you so much for saying so. So I would love to hear from you, and I'm sure our guests want to know as well. Um, how exactly did you find yourself on this journey to serving media makers and professionals? Oh, um, probably I grew up in the first or second golden age of television and watched it. Um, I went to, to be honest, I think my undergraduate education, I went to a um, Beloit College in Beloit, Wisconsin, which is a liberal arts school that really pushed people to think about connections. Um, You got to explore something in depth, but what were those connections? Um, From there, full disclosure, I was supposed to be on the Supreme Court by now. I'm glad that didn't work out because I think we have a really good woman going onto the Supreme Court right now. I'm very excited about um, our new justice. Um, so life took a lot of you know turns and tips. I taught school. I worked for lawyers. I was a tax paralegal. I got a graduate degree in urban design and historic preservation, which pulled together love of history. Um, I didn't want an architecture degree where someone was going to tell me where to put my building. I wanted to have an image of what's this overall space? What's the community we're trying to create? How do we honor what's come before? How do we move forward? So love that. Um, From there, I worked for more than a decade at the American Architectural Foundation and ended up producing four um, programs that subsequently um, aired on public television stations across the country. And we did, I think we worked with, I don't know, four or 500 communities across the country how they could take that knowledge to make better cities. So that was my dip into how do you make a program? How do you make a program somebody is going to watch? Um, I worked at that point. I got involved with women in film and video by hiring people. And it never occurred to me to be a member of women in film and video because I was a nonprofit executive. I wasn't a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I was serving in an executive producer role, but, and, and stayed at the foundation for a while left. And then the position opened and I thought, hmm, they were a really interesting nonprofit. I'd love to see how it works. 
and a couple of people there also reached out to me that we'd work together. Um, so I was honored to be hired. Um, and I think what was important and remains important about that is I love storytelling. I've been a reader forever. I am always fascinated by learning something about someone that I didn't know that lets me think about them in a different way or expands my view of the world. And so the opportunity to work with people who are telling or wanted to tell compelling stories, not all of our, you know, I work with people at all stages of the industry and all stages of storytelling, which means I'm learning something every day. You know, oh, I never thought about that. How did I not, I, I have all this education. I talked to all these people. How did I never know X? You know, 10 other people need to know why. I, I do believe um, story is what makes for a better world. It's, it's how we learn that there's another possibility and why I love working with Real Families for Change. What you're doing right now is, wait, let's think about how it could work differently. Let's, how, what are ways that it could work differently for people? And then how do we get to that place? And I get to work with people who are doing that every day across, you know, stories I never would have thought of. So I'm, um, I'm still surprised when I realize how long I've been at Women in Film and Video. I'm grateful every day I'm still there. Um, I know I've got some more work to do. Um, and I love that the organization has found ways to change and serve its constituency that pushes them to new ways of doing things and new ways of storytelling. Yes, I love that you said that because there, there are two things that I heard that I think are so profound, which is one, you really want to look at, yes, what exists and how do we honor what exists? But how do we also acknowledge that it may not be, um, not necessarily at its best, but it, there may be a way for this to better incorporate those mm. it's intended to serve, or there may be a better way to place this. And so I would love to hear from you a bit about, you know, how you kind of came to that, that framework of thinking, because it sounds like all throughout, there's been this thread of we we don't want to throw away <laughs> what what exists but we also don't want to simply accept how it is and like you have this very evolutionary so to speak or growth mindset so to speak how how does one get there and well i think you were yeah that's a really interesting question because uh, full disclosure as a history major as an undergraduate too history and status quo are not the same things mm -hmm. History, in many ways, is what a culture values. Status quo is a power structure to keep certain people in power. So I think one of the reasons I've become a subversive or continue to be a subversive is I've got a really big bruise on my head from all the brick walls I bang into regularly because certain people, things work well for them, for their bottom line, for their personal careers, whatever, um, because it's always the way it's been done. Um, I want to acknowledge, I don't think humans are the smartest species in the world. I don't think we're very good at recognizing massive ideas of change. We're really good at fighting them. Mm. I kind of think it's more interesting. I, and I'll fight them too. You know, it takes me a while to do something differently than I've done it. I, I'm not a paragon of anything. Of us, right. But we're not, one, we don't come up with that many original ideas. But two, when people do, they don't get made very often. And I think media is a perfect way to look at that. I, I think there's a lot of good stories 
that people have to make out of their own wallets because we don't support culture in this country. There is a perception that Hollywood is taking care of telling the stories we want to hear, we need to hear. I would say if you look at some of the things that are coming out of the established media industries, they're retellings of stories because they know that story worked and until it doesn't work for them anymore, that benefits their shareholders. I understand that business model, that's fine. But I think there needs to be space for those other stories that are being told. Yeah. And you know, in part, at some of the award programs, we saw that this year a little bit, a little bit. Um, and there are so many other, there are so many other stories that need to be told. I mean, it's it's that little story on your evening news. It's like who's following up with that person five years later? Yes. You know, um, what they were talking about on NPR today is Cow, which is a new documentary that follows the life of a milk cow. Hmm, it's not what most of us thought when we were drinking our milk this morning. Um, but it is that story we need to see. And I think the other, while early film, the early film industry in the United States was largely led by women and um, proliferated by women, when it changed into a system where there was money to be made for others, that changed. And that can be fine for a business. I'm not, I'm not delaying that, but those stories then also disappeared. Those nuances of storytelling disappeared. And some men are very good at nuanced storytelling. They're also working in the independent industry. So, you know, where is that place where those important stories get told and distributed? And so that's one of the pieces that you know, how I keep moving for that is I know there are other stories I don't know and I need to know as a human. And then once I know them, how does somebody else know them? I love that. I I would wonder from you, can you say more about not only the types of stories that we're telling and the diversification of the types of stories, but can you speak to a bit about how we're telling those stories mm -hmm. and how because of certain systemic developments, there's been some shift in, you know, the way women have been able to show up in their in their filmmaking and media making. Because I just want to, you know, I'm a bit biased, so I'll be completely transparent here. But I think with V does a phenomenal job of ensuring that its members are able to truly participate and contribute into the industry because there's no excuse. If you have children, bring them, let them show up someone will help there's there's always a space for whatever the accommodative need is there there seems to be a space mm -hmm. to address that to welcome them in and so i'd love to hear you talk a bit about the way that we make media and your ideas around that as well and just why with v kind of centers on that and i think some of that does come from you and the leadership but where does that where does that where does that push come from to ensure that that's there you know i really want to credit the founders of the organization the the dozen or so women that came together in 1979 um they were almost they were all at that point in nonfiction storytelling and more in the documentary realm and our region the mid-atlantic but particularly you know washington northern virginia southern maryland um we are one of the largest centers of nonfiction media production in the country um and that's one by throwing in the federal government media but also there's a core support group here 
of people who are working in nonfiction. Um, we did have, you know, the benefit of Discovery being here for a while. They've, you know, since moved. Um, but many of those production companies that were working for them have stayed here. So as the the studio systems, as the narrative film has turned more and more to, to studio systems and, and lots of gatekeepers to tell your stories, documentary and the statistics show, although I don't have the actual number, um, documentary has largely been more welcoming to women. Now, what are the reasons for that? One, you make the film as you have the funding and you're getting the funding for it. So no one's telling you how much you have to spend and when you have to spend it. Two, the schedule relies on the story. You know, when is, when is that subject matter available? When is this? Which gives the filmmaker a little more flexibility in telling the story. Three, most documentaries take a long time to tell. Rarely are they, lots of nonfiction storytelling may happen in six months or less. But documentaries that are telling compelling stories often take multiple years. And now, all of those things are good things on the one hand, but they also point to a major systemic problem in the United States, which is we don't fund the creation of culture the way most of the rest of the world does. So if you're scrappy and if you're committed, you can make a documentary film. Instead, those stories should be supported better. And I, I want to shout out to the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, the state's humanities and arts councils that do support independent filmmaking. And they do a heck of a lot with the funding they have. Their funding is pretty small. Yes. Um, so those of you who have state representatives and federal representatives, please vote to support for arts funding and cultural funding. I unfortunately live in the District of Columbia where I, we have actually, our city council is doing a decent job with funding there. But I can't vote for more arts for federal funding, and that's where the money really comes from. So, you know, that's one thing we can all do, or many of us can do, to change that. Um, I think what we found with our group of filmmakers is even those that started in documentary work also realized the power of narrative storytelling. And how can I tell maybe even the same story, but in a different way, to maybe take it from that very specific story centered on that incident, that person, to a more universal story by how does it work, you know, across this. So, you know, one example is loving and the loving story. You know, one was a documentary. Yeah. A filmmaker in Australia saw the documentary. I can't think of his name right now. I'm sorry. Um, and it was like, that should be a narrative film as well. Now, the good news is lots more people saw the narrative story but the story was what was important, not whether it was documentary or narrative storytelling. The storytelling was, what do you mean two people who love each other and want to be married can't be legally married? And, and you can fit in whatever two people you want to put in there of whatever, however they want to identify. That's the story. And having people see that makes change. Um, so we've built our... We clearly were focused on documentary um, and nonfiction work, and we still are. I would say at least 50% of our programming is that. The first grant we did was a seed fund for documentary filmmakers when we could invest back into our own members. Um, and we're doing more work to support narrative storytelling now because we have a growing group of people who that's the way they want to tell them, understand they, they aren't sure how that system works, so how can we help them with that? And then how do you find the funding for that? So you may be able to find grant funding for a documentary film 
if it you know is something that that organization can get behind it's more difficult to find grant money for narrative work because they expect a studio is supporting it and yet you know that's not the way it works so um i love that we kind of have our center in both of those things but part of it is how do we equip people to understand the systems they're working in and where there's a crack in that system that they can exploit to their own benefit yeah. to you know i occasionally tell people we want to be you know media makers but we also want to be dandelions because remember a dandelion can get in the crack of your foundation and bring down your whole house and ultimately we need to bring down the house so that funding for art and you know funding for artists across the board those are the people we look to in difficult times and in good times to give us a perspective on what we're living with that is absolutely that's just i mean that's a beautiful way to put it and it's absolutely profound and i think you know the truth of it is spoken to using the loving example there are current legislations right now that are seeking <laughs> to reverse <laughs> yeah. um you know interracial marriage and many people now familiar with this case because of having seen the film the narrative film predominantly but having become aware of this seeing the documentary seeing the narrative film are now feeling a bit more informed but also empowered to dig deeper and look at more and actually advocate against these legislations and say okay now that i understand you know the implications of this it's it's getting into again that story and being able to see it from another person's perspective and i think the fact that we are able to look at it and say like you said you can put any two people but two people who love one another who aren't able to be together and you're basically saying like this is coming across the board people feel you know empowered to to get involved and engaged and and do something about it and story did that so yeah i, I, think I, that's I, volumes. I find it fascinating right now the number of legislatures who are more concerned with um controlling personal behavior and expression than actually dealing with the issues that are facing us as a country in terms of hey at the beginning of the pandemic, how many of you actually realize we don't really make aspirin in the United States anymore or vitamin C or long list of drugs that, you know, and I'm delighted that we're supporting other countries, not that, but, you know, every day we're told the supply chain is breaking down. How about you actually pay attention to that? How are you supporting that? Um, I think it's fascinating this year, some of the films that have come out, um, The Janes, Call Jane, both narrative films, which I'm looking forward to seeing one's going to be showing here soon um about the jane collective which was providing illegal was providing abortions at a time when abortions were illegal but necessary and you know what what is that piece and at the same time i'm almost looking at those narrative films as documentaries because are we going to need a jane collective again soon and i do think story is the power we bring to those discussions Yes. You know, those examples. Um, but yeah, so how could I not love my job? I mean, it just boils down to that. I get to work with people who, whether they're trying to make the world a better place or not, they are, they have a story that they know needs to be told, they can tell it and they work to tell it. Yes. And so I, I want to dovetail a bit on mm -hmm. your comment really quickly about the, the dandelion right and equipping people to know what kind of system they're working in and being the dandelion that gets in the cracks um 
we know particularly as filmmakers and female filmmakers and media makers, creatives, oftentimes um, we, you and I, we talk about this life-friendly filmmaking and yeah. the fact that it isn't only having children or having a spouse. It's, you know, I want to be able to live life beyond what I'm doing. Um, I want to be able to not have to choose between the work I love and the people I love. There, it shouldn't have to be something that that's oppositional. I'd love to hear from you what advice you have or perspectives you have around where we seem to be headed with that, whether it's in a documentary space or the narrative space, but with people sort of beginning to identify that. We saw a lot of conversations over the course of the pandemic and people, you know, really becoming more aware of the work-life imbalance and the need for life-friendly filmmaking and, you know, workplace wellness. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Just what do you, what direction do you think we're headed in? And are there any good um, media examples of, of that happening right now where people can say, oh, is this what we're trying to strive for? Or is that what it looks like where the conversation might be happening? Yeah. Um, I love being in times of change. I think times of stasis are just boring. Um, there's a lot of change going on. I'm not sure a lot of it's being captured. So um, let me um, step back in a couple of ways. I think one thing that will help is, so for example, um, I don't consider, we're doing a ton of stuff on Zoom. I don't consider it's a real women in film and video Zoom call unless a child or an animal runs by and is acknowledged. Not that we're all pretending we don't see them, but oh, hi, so-and-so. Oh, what's the name of that pet? Oh, who else wants yes. to bring their pets to it? Because I think what we all do in our jobs is not often enough recognize those other parts of our life. We've kind of for a long time given people a reason to exclude that from, how, from our work piece. Yeah. And I don't think balance is the issue. I don't think there's, balance changes every day. I mean, we're all on those, what are those boards that you're supposed to balance on? You never really achieve equilibrium. You're always, yes, you're always off your balance. That's what life really is. Um, if it was, I don't know, maybe monks are balanced. I don't know, but you know, all the rest of us are constantly off. So let's acknowledge that, but then let's acknowledge that. And then what are the pieces need be? And I don't think I want us to stop using the word accommodation. I'm not asking to be accommodated necessarily um, because accommodation almost always is a singular term. We rarely use it for the entire ecosystem. Sure. It's an exception to the ecosystem. That's something we need to change. I don't know what the word is, no. um, but I find that words like that give, give us a, something to check off, not something to change. So, I think I think that's one of those pieces. I think a real honest conversation about what do we all need. Um, the other night we, we were doing a program and um, we were talking budget and scheduling, actually. Um, and the presenter was has worked for the director, Steve McQueen and Clint Eastwood. And she said, you know, what was fascinating about those sets is they film short days. We were done in eight hours every day. Now we budgeted for 10 to 12 hours because we were budgeting that way. That was the standard. They did the work in advance that we never had longer than an eight hour day. 
Now people, union people were still being paid their 10 hours, so they were happy. Um, but we were all happier because we all had a space that wasn't just slamming together whatever I had to do when I got back to the hotel or with my family or getting out early the next morning. Now, I had never heard that story before. And these are films she worked on previously. Yes. So that's a story I'm going to be using. You know, that's something I want to be sharing that that makes a huge difference for everybody. It just gives you a chance to breathe. I don't know. This is an overstatement. I was going to say, I don't know of a more, you know, intensive place to work than a film set. I can actually think of lots of places, emergency rooms, steel factories. I can think of a lot of other places because we're all there because we love what it is we're doing, you know, and that's whether I'm the craft person, the grip, the camera person, the actor, we're all there because it feeds part of our soul as well as our bank account. Um, we've chosen, you know, we very much, it's cool. It's cool. When you tell somebody you work on a film set, their faces all light up and they want to know. Um, but I think there are ways that we have, can start acknowledging that. I think there are ways, how does that set work for everyone? Yes. You know, and I think COVID um, and the pandemic has caused changes on set, some of which work, some of which don't. Um, let's be honest, a lot of us move into media and the arts because we're introverts. Being on a film set is actually kind of traumatic for some people, you know. Um, so some people have really enjoyed the extra space on a film set because it, it lets them keep their space a little bit. Well, let's acknowledge that. And let's say, okay, as the set moves forward, what are those spaces even when we can work closer together and on a tighter schedule? Because particularly independent films, it's a tight schedule. I don't have $30 million to make my film. I probably don't have a million dollars to make my film. We're not going to have a six week shoot period. We're going to have, you know, can we do it these days? Can we get those spaces? We've got a bar scene. Oh, okay. We can't afford to buy out the bar during the day on a Thursday night. We're going to be working 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. You know, that's going to change other things. Um, but then let's acknowledge that. What are those other changes then? You know, what are those other pieces? Um, what is that space? And I, I will go back because we're all putting not just our technical skills to work when we're on set. We're also often putting our emotional skills on set because we're invested in the story. Mm -hmm. We chose to work on that project because there's something about that project Very we true. believe in. So we may also need to think moving forward, what is that space on set that's a space where people can go to just sit and think for a minute? Um, and, and that doesn't even mean it's a traumatic set. You might need a space to go because that last scene was so friggin' funny, you can't stop laughing. Nobody else can film because you're laughing and you've got a big laugh. So you're holding everything up. Maybe you should just be able to move to a space that, okay, okay. You know, we might have a few less blooper reels, but we might have a set that meets time and, you know, time and space. So I think that's one thing. I think acknowledging remote work that basically puts all the onus of all the work on that person doing it wherever they are. So I don't know of a lot of people who've gotten supplemental payments for their internet. Correct. I don't know a lot of people, um, I, I don't know a lot of people who necessarily have a separate space at in their home that can truly be a completely separate space. Um, so, you know, things are coming back and forth and you might be sharing your dining room table with your fourth grader, which is great. To be honest, that's great. I love the thought. I don't know if you've had this, but in my neighborhood, 
I, um, we have more kids here than we used to, which is great. And, but pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, I would see the kids out on the weekend with their father or their mother. And you always knew the other parent was getting a break. <laughs> and, and, you know, they'd worked it out. Dad would take the kids to the local Starbucks to get the coffee because you'd watch them go back with two cups and whoever was getting their break. Now I'm seeing these kids having a lot of time with both their parents outside. Mm. And I really, I think those toddlers will have a totally different worldview of how it's supposed to work. Yes. And that's exciting to me for when they're parents. <laughs> you know, yes. It's a really long time frame there. But, and I think for some of those parents, that's also changing. So I think we have some opportunities, some seeds are getting planted that things can be differently and work that way at work. Yes. For us in, in media, we often, at some point, you can't do all the work from home. Well, actually, I know some people who've completely made films over the period where they've all worked independently of one another, and they're really good films. So you can, the question is, do you want to? Yeah, um, I've, I've seen some of that where there have been independent crews and small crews all then coming back together to bring their master shot list and do their editing and everything. Yeah, I've, I've seen it. And again, like you said, we can, but do we want to? But I think it would be really interesting if we were looking at those smaller independent productions as the way to moving forward instead of celebrating the really huge ones that are getting made in a closed studio system where only X people are here. Yeah, you can you can isolate everyone to do it. That's that is a model. But is there another model? So I'd like to see that model tip a little bit and say, okay, what are the two pieces that we gain here? Um, I do think pay equity is a real issue. I think in our industry, we're seeing um, pay in a downward spiral instead of an upward spiral. Um, oh, I don't have the overhead, so I can pay you less, but you still have my expertise. So, you know, what is that piece? How do we actually pay as one way? There are others. How do we actually acknowledge the work that's being done? Um, and how do we acknowledge the models that are being done? Um, so I think there's a lot there. And I think for everybody, whether we've wanted to or not, we've probably had to have more time with whatever our family unit is. Um, and for some people, that's probably great. And for some, that's probably ill. But what are the pieces from that that we do want to carry forward? So we know that children can be accommodated on set. We know what happens on major projects on a regular basis when somebody says, sure, I'll do that for eight weeks, but my family is coming with me. Right. And, and that project does have to happen for that person to be there. But unless everybody else's local crew and is going home at night, what accommodation, <laughs> what opportunities are being given to them to also have that different balance? And it won't work for everybody. You know, two career families, not everybody can necessarily pick up and leave and go somewhere. Um, but, but let's actually look at that. You know, what are the benefits of somebody showing up on time and ready to work every day versus someone I got caught? I long for the day. I long for the day when the woman who says she's going to her kid's baseball game or taking them to their doctor's appointment is lauded as much as the man who says that, who's lauded as father of the year because he's leaving early to go to his child's doctor's appointment, or the person who we all understand you have to go home and walk and feed your dog. Right. You don't all understand you have to go home and walk and feed your children. Right. Now, I, I'm not I'm not trying to put children first. It might be 
I need to go home and walk and feed my mother because many of us are caught in a caregiving piece of it. Absolutely. And, you know, that also needs to be acknowledged. And there are ways that that works to the benefit of everybody on the project because they may not need that flexibility at that moment. They might later. And we don't always know, we don't always get advance notice that we need that flexibility. Yes. So it, it, how do we build it in? And, that's, and that may be redundancy, you know, somebody else should know what I do. So that if I get an opportunity to be on a Greece, Greek island for two weeks and I take it, which would be <laughs> awesome, that the world that I'm in control of doesn't stop. Okay. So what is that job sharing piece that we should, we yes. should be doing? That benefits all of us. What is that, um, you know, we're going to ask you to work this weekend, but then you're going to get these three days off and we're all going to get those three days off. It's up to everybody to decide how they take them. You know, yeah. what is that? Um, have you been reading our white papers? <laughs> well, I have been reading your white papers because I'm thrilled every time they come out and I've been sharing them. But I think it is that larger conversation that I hope that I hope a lot of us are having and that those expectations aren't just for the people in charge who have the private jet and can afford to fly someplace. It's there for whomever is, again, telling important stories we need to know. I mean, I know a lot of people who are making films that none of us really want to watch. You know, I, somebody just said the other day, well, it's not a date night movie. And I literally responded to them, well, it's good we're not dating so I can go see it. Because you've committed time and resources to tell this story that's not doesn't have the proverbial happy ending, but it does look at a dysfunctional family and in a way, you know, with amazing actors, in a way that every family is dysfunctional at some point. Am I going to pick something up there? Yes. And I want to support the work. You know, I want to support the work. I mean, I think it's, it's other small things. So many independent films are made through crowdfunding. Okay, you know, we're not a major studio investing in a film. But I, I try and invest, you know, I try and make a contribution, maybe small, to as many films as I can. Because hopefully they're supporting, you know, someone else. How are we paying it forward to ourselves yes. as an industry? You know, how can we show? And it's not that we should do it all ourselves. I'm not saying we should cut ourselves off from the ecosystem. But unless there's another ecosystem, they don't know there's a better way of doing it. Yes. I And I, I love everything that you said because it sums up so much of the work that we are trying to do at RFC with what we're calling integrated solutions. And mm -hmm. I love that you mentioned, you know, going beyond accommodations. And that's actually something that I know I'll be sitting with and thinking through because accommodations is so often connected to um, inclusion work, right? And I'm always one to say, we, we have to look a bit beyond inclusion even and to integration. And so um, how do we truly ensure, because when we, when we integrate, like you said, if, if one thing is not working, there may be some redundancy to ensure that that gap is filled somehow. There's a lot of overlap and such intricate overlap that the gaps are not so wide and porous and people aren't spilling through. So I, I think you have absolutely hit something on the head there. Um, and even with regard to the types of solutions, you know, how do we address job sharing and wage equity and technological subsidies? And how do we do these things to ensure, like you said, that it's working for all? I, I, I've said this, I know I probably sound like a broken record, but 
it wasn't working for everyone before the oh pandemic. my god no why do we keep trying to go back who to did, what was not working who did the normal or status quo really work for <laughs> except for a very small portion and also it's tech it's technological equity you know i'm i'm talking to you right now off of a laptop that i kept at windows 7 because it's more stable than later ones number one number two which it's going to die on its own soon because you know whatever but right now baby you just stick with me um <laughs> But there's, you know, how, how many of us have been on different calls where this, here's a simple one. Why isn't the internet a public utility instead of something that depending on how much money you have and where you live yes. depends on the access you have? Because how many of us have been on a phone call where somebody is suddenly frozen or dropping out or whatever? And to pretend any longer that the internet is not a public utility that our children who are relying on it for their education, yes. how many college students did we hear from who, North Carolina being one of the examples I know for sure, that they lived in parts of North Carolina that did not have internet access at the level the university was distributing materials. So they would drive three hours in to be in the university's hotspot. They couldn't get in any of the buildings. They didn't have access to the books. They would sit in a car yes. so that they could download materials so they could go back home and use them. Yeah. WTF is that. Right, or teachers and students sitting in McDonald's parking lots for hotspots, or even editors that I knew who were sitting outside of public libraries trying to get on so that they're, you know, because now so much of our software is cloud-based, you can't download something and utilize it. So, so it's a subscription-based, you have to go online, so. And yeah. I think it gets back to what you're talking to. I really try daily to remember what I'm working for is equity. Yes. That what is that equity? To pretend that we have level playing fields now is just folly. Um, I used to work with some great people in architecture, and um, he's like, we're not the number one manufacturer of this particular product. We're not even the number two. So when I go into a meeting all the time, I try and figure out what's the one thing I can do to change the game. Do I bring the ball? Do I have the referee? Do I insist we work on natural grass instead of AstroTurf? It, it, you know, and those were his, those were their metaphors. But what, what, how do I, how do we change the game that turns the conversation so that we have a place at the table? Because even among us right now, it's, it's not equitable. Diversity is something people get to check off because they're doing it by counting. Yes. And, and I agree with you. Inclusion is not necessarily integration. But if it's, if we start from equity, and what is that level playing field? And and are we all looking at, is everybody here having equitable access to that resource, to that microphone, to that whatever? Does that start to change the way, you can't check that off anymore. Right. That's not a check off, that's not a quantifiable piece anymore. Because equity works on so many different levels than whatever I've identified as the diversity I wanna have represented, represented right now. Yeah. Um, and it's that's a bigger conversation. I'm thrilled with the number of companies they're at least acknowledging they need to have somebody who's paying attention to those things. I hope they're getting a framework that allows them to look at it, not how does it work best for the company, but how does it work best for the people at the company. Um, I think something else, you know, we get great statistics every year of the number of women in the top 250 grossing films in a year. Okay, well, I would say right there, it's the wrong system of success. It's the long, it's the wrong success measure because the 250 top grossing films may not have been any of the best films made in that year. 
may not have been any of the films that somebody needed to see, may not have been any of the films that will make change for the better or change for the worse. I'm not saying every independent film is a good thing. Um, but already it's the wrong, you know, did those 200 top grossing films actually read, reach the audiences they needed to reach with their stories? They reach people who could afford to buy movie tickets, which is great, which is great. We need people to, to honor the work by supporting it with tickets or attending film festivals or whatever. I'm not saying we work in a monetary based system, so someone has to buy it. But what about those people who couldn't afford to buy those movie tickets? How are they getting access? How do they see it? You know, we, we talk to documentary filmmakers all the time. Um, how do you find the audience for that film? Well, I want it to be on these streaming services. Okay. Do the people that need to see your film, can they afford those streaming services? Can they, do they have a spare $2.99 to, to rent it? And sometimes they do. And, and again, I'm not saying they shouldn't be on those streaming services. Thank God for some of the streaming services who are actually supporting, you know, independent work and, and providing a platform that people can get to. It's not, it's not an either or, it's truly a both and. Yes. But let's get to both and. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there's, there's, there is evidence of it already existing in that when the pandemic hit and people were isolated in their homes, many of the streaming services said we recognize that children are going to be learning from home so we're going to put our children's content in here that we would normally have behind a paywall we're going to put it up for free we're also going to give you access to our streaming service for four months for free we're going to do these things because we recognize the importance of that access unfortunately many um, internet companies did not do the same so there was a malalignment there but there were some companies that said if your student was receiving free and reduced lunch, we'll go ahead and give you free access. So it's really about that ecosystem. I love that you said ecosystem. You know, that's one of my favorite words. <laughs> and so I, I love that yeah. you said that because it really is about creating an equitable ecosystem and creating something that works for all. And one of the things that's so important to us here at RFC is as we're looking at creating, it's not simply saying, okay, you know, how many have we had? I, I think you made a great point about checking boxes. And we're always like, nope, it's not just about checking the boxes. Are we sure that everyone is getting what they truly need from mm -hmm. this experience or from this interaction? What it is that they are actually seeking from this? And does the system support that? And is the system sustainable in its support of that? And so it's really something that we've we've looked at, you know, I, I love Gina Davis's um sentiment about if they can see it they can mm -hmm. see it and we always say but there's got to be a road and if that road is filled with barriers someone has to be doing the work to move it and so often it isn't just the seeing and being it isn't a straight line and so what we want to do is create that pathway to something better um i know we're coming up on the end of our time so i would love one to bring you back because we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> well, thanks. And you just raised sustainability. I think that's critical. And we've, I've skirted it, but haven't fully addressed it. And that's one of the other pieces that I know a lot of independent filmmakers to get their one film made. Um, and that's just the clue to the next one. And that sustainability piece of we as a culture, I mean, let's be honest, the United States is the one of the only countries in the entire world that does not have a minister of culture. Mm. We yeah. don't have a cabinet level department who is yeah. actually paying attention to the cultural attributes, we pretend that Hollywood and the networks, they're taking care of that. Um, but are people being paid? You know, I, I would argue, well, 
I was going to say um, that a filmmaker should be paid as much as an Uber driver, but they need to be paid more too. But you know, we are at least starting to have some conversations about what is a living wage yes. and what are those pieces and the ephemeral arts. And those are in quotes because you can't see them. The ephemeral arts are as valuable on many given days as steel manufacturing or as building a new road or as you know whatever and and again that level playing field i would love to come back akima you know i adore conversations with you and i think you know um we didn't get to our favorite veep example so we'll do that again the next time but again that's an equity question interestingly which until today's conversation i hadn't grounded it in that space yet oh yes and that's what it is it's not making any judgment about why that space is needed it's acknowledging someone is likely to need that space yes that's a different way of doing it so thank you thank you for that i always learn so much from you and likewise this is always this is just always such a beautiful experience i would love if you have any one last statement one last thought final contribution that you want to share with anyone i'm always you know i'm always interested in hearing if there's any practical advice or anything or something that you know can help people to sort of ground themselves as they move through this work you know i think the one that i'm trying to remember every day is i may not be the person to tell that story or to make that beautiful thing but there is some way i can support that endeavor whether i'm contributing it to it whether i'm acknowledging it whether I'm just taking a moment to watch. And I want to push it all back on, on your audience as well. It's really easy to be overwhelmed and just be like, it's too much. I can't take that on. You know, that's not going to happen. I will guarantee you that everybody who hears this, there is something they can do to support someone who has a story to tell. And that's your two-year-old as much as it is that female director or that male director or that non-binary director as who's trying to do it professionally. Because we also have to inculcate everybody we interact with that it's not just the bottom line. If that's all we're working towards, it's not that interesting. No, I, that you, the moment you started speaking and brought that up, it made me think of um, the Margaret Mead quote and so mm. I, I want to leave us with that, which is um, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed individuals can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. One of my favorites too, that I keep meaning to embroider so that it's physically in my space, but it's, I love the work that Real Families for Change is doing to start to change that conversation and make it a consistent conversation. So I really do want to honor and acknowledge the work you're doing and I'm, I'm on the team, whatever I can do, count me in. Thank you, Melissa. And likewise, and we absolutely have to have you back. I look forward to it. Thank you. Awesome. Take care. You too. Hey friends, that concludes our show. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and don't forget to leave us a comment as well. It doesn't cost you anything and it gives us a whole lot of opportunity to share our message with others in the industry and even beyond. We look forward to connecting with you on social media. You can find us across all platforms 
at Real Families, R-E-E-L. And want to continue this conversation? Join us over on our Facebook community, facebook.com backslash groups backslash Real Families. Until next time, stay safe and well.